going to carry on in the style of Wayne, although I probably won't make you laugh as much. Um, but his, his rambling style is, is right in, in line with what, what I've prepared here because I don't have, uh, you know, a clear, a clear line through the topic that I'm going to address today. And it dovetails very nicely with what you said, Wayne, so that's why you got the thumbs up to keep going. Uh, God knew what we were going to talk about. And, uh, but because I'm not good at the jokes, I thought I'd start with a comedian. And uh, since my controls are not working, I'm going to ask in the back there if you can get that first video up. And we'll start with that. Recently, my wife and I sat down to figure out how we were doing financially. Our net was looking pretty gross, so we decided to list our personal assets. There are two kinds of assets, I am told. Liquid assets are measured by how much you have invested in milk, orange juice, and root beer. Solid assets are the ones that will outlive the expiry date on your milk carton. Here was our list of, of solid assets. A Shih Tzu Maltese dog that we paid $300 for, about $100 per brain cell. $220 worth of keychains that we have never used, and approximately $13 worth of pop cans. Also, we had roughly $700 of spare change beneath our sofa cushions, $31.50 in postage stamps that we cannot use because the Postal Service raises the rates every other Wednesday. Well, if you are about to back your bank finance car out of your bank-owned garage to drive with credit card gas to open a charge account so you can fill your mortgage with new furniture because of a sign that promises no payments until February, put the keys in your pocket and listen to a little advice. These simple steps have helped us live debt-free and cut back on the amount we spend on extra-strength Tylenol. First off, if thy credit cards outspend thee, cut them off. 70% of credit card holders carry six to $7,000 in unpaid balances. Be careful. I have a credit card. I use it. It doesn't use me. Here's how. Never buy with credit what you wouldn't pay with cash. Pay off your card each month, and remember, you can leave home without it. Secondly, buy a lottery ticket every 250,000 years. Our government, in its infinite wisdom, has allowed a special tax for people who did not do well in fifth grade mathematics. It's called the lottery. Proverbs 28.20 says, the person who wants to get rich quick will only get into trouble. Third, earn more than you spend. I was brought up with a simple philosophy, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. When our kids were small, we showed them how to put their allowance in envelopes labeled, for God, for me, for the future. If there was more month than money, they learned a valuable lesson. Ask your dad for money. Four, choose contentment over consumption. In my own experience, I, I don't tend to own my possessions. They own me. They cry out to be used, to be fixed, to be replaced. So keep it simple. Want what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And number five, remember, new does not always mean improved. I've sold a zillion books, and I still don't buy new cars. There's great peace knowing that no one on earth is going to steal my 1978 Dodge Dart. Number six, enjoy things without owning them. Rent when you can. It's okay. 
I love the peace of mind that comes when you don't have to fix stuff. And number seven, put not your trust in retirement accounts. We have taken steps to save a bit for the future. But remember, there is no guaranteed investment on this earth. In 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, the Apostle Peter talked about the only guaranteed and lasting investment. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. How cool is that? No bank can offer such an ironclad guarantee. So let me ask you, what are you investing in? Where is your treasure? I've sat our children down and told them that we're, we're spending their inheritance. Thank you very much. We're investing in stuff that lasts, helping others when we can, investing in organizations that make a difference in the lives of others, in missionaries who are bringing God's truth to life in difficult parts of the world. And we're enjoying some of that cash with our kids when we can. I've also told them the last check I write is going to be to the undertaker, and it's going to bounce. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna skip the slides this morning, but uh, maybe just go to the next one. It's not working there either. Capitalism or socialism? I know, I know. Pick me. Okay, Billy. Jesus. The answer is always Jesus in in Sunday school. I wanted to talk about economy. It's a hot topic in our day. And uh, I don't have, uh, I mean, it's such a big topic that I don't know that much about that I'm just going to ramble a few different topics around that I think give us some background idea. But I plan to land on a place very similar to where Wayne landed on, and that is um, uh, how, how do we live? our lives as Christians, uh, irregardless of what's happening um, around us in economies. And so um, I realized very quickly as I was looking into just a, just a few of these current affairs, hot topic issues, uh, that economy actually lies near the center, maybe not the center, but it, lears, it lives near the center of all of them. And, you know, take, for example, politics, which I looked at last week. I'm convinced that both the NDP and the UCP truly want Alberta to flourish. But they have vastly different ideas about what economic policies might get us there. And, uh, and those policies are so different that they cause us to fight. Same is true with a, a controversial topic like the environment. Um, there's, there, maybe economics isn't the central issue there, but it's very near the center of the, of the debates and the, and the disagreements. And, and I think that the vast majority of people, except for maybe a, a few extreme people on either end, truly want to see a moose uh, run across the road when, when they drive down the road to have a bluebird blue in the forest and to breathe clean air. I mean, there's a lot of other issues, but, but everyone wants that. But 
vastly different ideas on what economic policies will get us there. And, and uh, you can even look at something uh, as, as, uh, as hot today as, as a topic like racial relations. And there again, vastly different ideas about what economic uh, policies would lead to that outcome of everyone getting along and doing well. Now, I don't know if I'm going to touch on environmentalism and racism in this message series. I'm hoping after next week when I tackle pandemic, uh, then I hope that by the next time I'll be ready to jump into the New Testament books. Uh, But my preparation is going along. Um, But I want to open a few doors. Just, you know, instead of exploring the topic in detail, because it's far too complicated, I'm sure I'd mess it up. But I want to open a few biblical doors to look at some things and just kind of look in there and say, okay, if you wanted to explore this idea of economics and God, uh, go through that door and explore in there and go through that door and explore in there and then come around to just some really practical questions that we need to ask ourselves, not in terms of what's the solution to the controversy or who's right and who's wrong, but how should we live in in the situation we find ourselves? So the first question has to do with, um, you know, what, what we would all want the answer to. Well, if God designed an economic system, what would it look like? It's really not that complicated a question to answer, though it takes a lot of time and detail. Read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Put at the top of your notes on every page, what does this verse, what did this story what does this law teach me about what God thinks about economics, you'll get a pretty good idea. Uh, God set up an economic system for a culture on earth that he designed. You can read about it. I'm not going to explore it, but I'm going to just tell you to the conclusions I've come to. Uh, So I'm not making the argument for this. (laughs) You can read the books. You can ask me about it. but this is the two of the things that I think are key in if you did that study. God's economic system was based on worship and generosity. There was no king, there was no government except for God. And the way money was exchanged was through worship, through offerings. And it was dependent upon the generosity of God. To supply the needs. Now that's very broad. That's not an economic system, but that's I think the motivation. I think that's that's what I get from reading those books with an economy in mind. It's economy based on worship and generosity. But you see, the thing is, no one on earth has ever followed that program. If you read the Old Testament, you begin to know immediately that the people of God received that promise of his care, never really followed it. It wasn't long, and they demanded a king, uh, a different economic system, and, uh, and, and went off down that path. I don't see, I don't see any party, any politician, any dictator, any... Um, economist 
arguing for an economy based on worship and generosity today. So I don't think it matters which way you vote. You're not voting for God's ideal plan for economy on earth. Now we're all going to have our opinions about which way to vote for the best economy that we can get. I think that's a good thing to do. Look at the facts, see what you think, and, and get involved. But as, as Wayne already said, that part of our life, we, we manage, we do it, but that belongs to Caesar. That whole, you know, even getting involved in, in lobbying for a party that you truly believe in, I, I'm not against that. But you have to understand, I think, as a Christian, that belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't put your worship there. Don't put your hope there. Don't put your trust for the future there. Yes, we want the best possible outcomes economically in our neighborhoods, in our province, in our country, and around the world. But don't put your hope there. So here's the thing that the Bible teaches us. I don't have a specific verse for this, but even bad governments do some good. So think biblically the worst governments you can think of. Think of, for example, the pharaohs in Egypt who had God's people in slavery. What was the first thing God's people complained about when they were in the desert, in the wilderness? At least we had good food. We were slaves. It was a horrible economic system for us, but it did some good. We had dependable food supply. Yeah, even the worst possible governments do some good in this world. Uh, you, can, you, can look at, um, you can look at that in, in today's world too. Um, the worst governments, I don't know what you'd put on the list, whether you'd choose a communist government or something else, uh, but the worst governments do pro- provide some good in the world. They generally provide some stability, so people can kind of duck their heads under the regulations and not, I'm not saying abuse them, but just stay unnoticed if you're a persecuted person and live a relatively peaceful life. The Roman government in the New Testament, um, under Nero, towards the end of the New Testament period, uh, blamed the Christians for the destruction of the city of Rome by fire and widespread and violent persecution went out across the entire Roman world. And in those conditions, both Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ, and Paul the Apostle told the people in the churches to honor the government. Both Peter and Paul used the Romes and the general peace across uh, borders to travel and plant churches. Paul, in prison for being a a Christian, wrote letters and knew that the people, his friends and co-workers that he gave the letters to and say, go take this to the church, because there was no postal system. Uh, He had the expectation that the roads and the safety of the environment would be such that they would get to their destination and deliver the letter. Even the government that was persecuting the church did some good in this world. Now, the opposite of true, of course, too. Even good governments do a lot of bad in this world. Even the best governments. So think biblically again. What's the best government in the biblical story? We always put on the highest pedestal King David and Solomon. 
heart after God, the widest extent of the borders, all the blessings promised in the covenant were seemed to be coming true. And yet at the end of their combined reign, the economic system had fallen apart so badly that the kingdom split in two over taxation. And if you read their stories, half the pages are about the horrible things both of those men did. Even the best governments do bad in this world. That's why Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah, it's important. Governments and economies and all of that stuff, saving for retirement, all of that. Don't put your hope there. Don't put your worship there. Don't trust in these things. They're not the first priority. What did the New Testament Christians do in such circumstances? They put the kingdom of God first. They developed little communities that they understood as being from a different kingdom, serving a different king. They weren't citizens of Rome. They were citizens of heaven, their home. And they were building little groups of people across the Roman Empire that lived by a different economy. Economy based on worship and offering and generosity with one another. Where no one would have need in the community, in the family, and those who had would give and those who did not uh, would receive. Let's open another little thought experiment, a little door about economies. I'm switching topics drastically now. There's not an argument in between them. One of the things that uh, recently Colin and I have been watching is called Tiny House Nation. I don't know if any of you have watched it. But it's about people who live in big houses and they build a tiny little house, you know, 400 square feet and try to move into there. I wanted to watch it because I'm fascinated by the creativity of the, and the construction process. I, I like building things and the challenge of getting everything you need in a house into this tiny space is quite an extraordinary challenge and I, I, I was curious about that. I'm not saying I want to live in a house like that, but I was curious how they did it and how they built it and and all of that. But as we've watched a few different episodes, we find that the greatest drama has nothing to do with construction. It's watching these people go from having many things to having few things. You know, some, some people have, mo- have this house that they live in and they're going to move into a tiny house that they're building. And there's more stuff in one bedroom in their house than can fit in the tiny home. And it's, 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 a, it's a huge... Uh, activity of prioritizing to get there. It's very, very difficult for them. And it made me think about some of the times, I mean, I've been happy many times in many places in my life, but one of the times when I was as happy as I've ever been is when I took, when I got rid of everything I own and only kept what I could fit on a bicycle. Of course, that was right after high school, so a little bit different level of, of possessions than I have now. But it was still quite a cutback on my possessions. My friend and I rode through BC for, for weeks on our bicycles, and a couple of week, uh, about a week in, we'd additionally thrown away half of the stuff we took on our bicycles. <laughs> we were happy. It doesn't take much to be happy. forces us to prioritize. What are we, you know, as, as 
Phil Calloway said, my last check is going to be to the undertaker and it's going to bounce. You're not taking it with you anyways. When you go home, when you truly go home. This leads us to a scripture. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Now I've always read that verse and assumed that he was talking about his own personal finances. Uh, the fact that he was, for example, shipwrecked or put in prison and then out of prison and some of these things. But as I've been doing this background study for the New Testament, uh, I've realized something or I've seen something. I think I knew it before, but it's come clear to me. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about something different. We're going to go through this in a couple of weeks when we enter the New Testament. But I'm just going to give you a a, a little... um, a little preview into that. You remember last Sunday? Some of you do, some of you don't. But I put up the map of Palestine in the time of the New Testament. And within that tiny little geographic area, there was five or six very distinctly different political jurisdictions. And each of those political jurisdictions, which we didn't talk about last week, and I'm not going to talk about this week, but they each had very different economic policies and procedures. Very different. So that's interesting, but I want to look at Paul's statement here in Philippians chapter 4 and see what he's talking about. At one point in time, these aren't necessarily in order, but I just want to talk about economic policy and what he's talking about here in terms of contentment. Paul comes to a city. He's along the river, and he meets some women one of them named Lydia. She's a wealthy trader or merchant in textiles. She's interested in what Paul has to say, her and some of the other ladies. Uh, He shares the gospel with them of Jesus Christ, and they become Christians. And that becomes the nucleus of a little church. And Paul lives with Lydia and some other people from that church. And They're wealthy merchants. He has the best food, the best wine, the best accommodations, the softest blankets. He has plenty. Now, as they go around the the city and seek for more and more followers of Jesus, it becomes a diverse group. They're slaves to merchants in, in this church. And they begin to share with one another so none would have need. But in that situation, in that economic place, he has plenty, and he's content. Another time, he travels to a place, a town that we know of if we read our book of Acts, uh, but he travels to a town that has no history. The Romans just decided this was a geographic location where they wanted to have a garrison station. They wanted a military post, kind of like Wainwright. 
different than Wainwright. There was no town. There was no economy. They just thought it was strategic to have a military presence there in that spot. And so they took a garrison and planted it there. So almost all the people who were not military in that place are slaves. There's no economy. There's no natural trading routes or roads or anything. There's no foundation underneath. There, there, there's nothing. But of course, if you set a military garrison there, then some people are going to come and, and, and it's just basically uh, people who could do business with, uh, with, because the military guys were getting wages. They just send some slaves there to, do some, to order them to do some work and send money back. Paul went there and among those slaves started a church. He had nothing to eat. He went without food. He went without new clothes in a completely different economic situation. He did not, he did not say, I have learned the secret of improving the economy of every place I am. But when he was in a different economic situation, he found those people who were interested in Jesus. And he gathered them together and began to disciple them. And as followers of Jesus, they began to worship the God who is generous. And they started to be generous to one another. And they became a church. They became an outpost of heaven in earth. Living by an economic system that doesn't exist on this earth. But can only exist by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying as churches they were good at it. Read your New Testament. They weren't good at it. But that's what they were trying to do. He traveled to another town, inland, in the mountains, uh, central, uh, what today we would call Turkey. And in this town, um, it's a long-established farming community. It's a, it's a city that, that, like we talked about last week with the Decapolis, had an arrangement with the Romans. So they'd never been invaded by the Romans. But they just paid the tribute to the Romans to keep them out and said, we'll keep the peace in this area, we'll pay our tributes, we'll follow the rules of Rome. But just And, and Rome said, okay, we'll stay out of your area. You manage that, you do your tribute, fine. Pay your taxes, give to Caesar. So these are, in this area, there's almost no slaves because all the people own land and are farmers and are providing food for all of these other places that we've talked about. And their economies and their systems of trade have been established for a hundred years. It's stable. And he goes there and he has good food. And he has everything he needs. And what does he do? He finds those people who are God-fearers, tells them about Jesus, gathers them together in a group, and they learn to worship God together. And they learn to be generous with one another and with their neighbors like God is. And he starts a church, a little community, a little outpost of heaven, spreading the message of heaven here on earth. And this is what he writes. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've lived in every different kind of economic situation. I've learned the secret of being content whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
worship and generosity. So what is the Jesus answer? Does Jesus talk about this? Well, maybe not as directly as he did in, uh, in the uh, Give to Caesar's discourse uh, about politics. But if we read what he writes or what he said, what Matthew wrote down in Matthew 6, and think about this beyond just personal economics. We tend to read Matthew 6 when we're personally struggling with worry. But think about it more broadly. It has a lot to tell us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and thieves break in and steal. And if I was to add, I'd say, and taxes come and taxes go. The stock market goes up and down. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where all of these earthly things Do not destroy. For wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of of you by worrying add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What Jesus conspicuously does not say is while you are here on earth, devote yourself to the best possible governmental economic policy, and you'll be secure for the future. He doesn't say that. He says the pagans run after those things. The pagans devote their life and their energy to trying to secure economic security here on earth. Seek first his kingdom and these things will be added. He doesn't say 
They're of no value, these things. They're important. They're the context in which you live. But they're not the reason you live there. And if God decides that Canada needs an economic downturn, there's nothing you can do to stop it. If God decides that your bank account should be full, that will be the blessing he gives you. But that should not be what you seek first. It's a consideration. It comes second, maybe, but it's not first. He doesn't say it's difficult to serve two masters. He says you can't do it. You have to choose. And by not choosing, you've probably already chosen. You can't serve both. Phil Calloway said his possessions try to possess him. They want to be fixed, they want to be used, they want the gas tanks want to be filled. So if there's less of them, there's more ability to focus clearly on God and his kingdom. It's not an economic policy. It's instructions on how to live under any economic policy. It's instructions on how to get your priorities straight. So that whatever happens economically around you, it's not throwing you off track like the wind in a storm. Matthew 12, we hear this account. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, putting in everything, all she had to live on. Point me to a class in economics that this woman would pass. She wouldn't even pass Dave Ramsey's. But she passed the Jesus is the answer test. She used everything she had in worship to God and believed in his generosity. She had no fear of the future she was storing her treasures in a different place. It's difficult for us, isn't it, to praise this woman if we're really honest. Really? Give your last coins? I mean, what about the story about the guy who only had one bag of oranges, kept one to eat and sold the rest and then bought two bags tomorrow and ended up a millionaire? Wouldn't that be better advice? She passed the Jesus test. She gave what she had in worship to God in the form of an offering. It's difficult. Everything she had belonged to Jesus. So let's ask this question. 
If I lived in Wainwright in the year 2021, with all the uncertainties of the current economic situation, what should I do and how should I live? Well, that's a hard question to answer. Maybe I'll leave that one for you, but let me ask this question of some other people. If I lived in North Africa in the 7th century, given the economic situation I was in, how should I live? You see, North Africa in the 6th century was almost completely Christian. From the Sahara Desert north, the entire northern half of Africa was Christian everywhere. Unfortunately, they weren't particularly strong militarily. And the Muslim nations came in and completely took over all of the governments of North Africa at the time. Drastically changing the economic system that people were living under. They had this option in in some cities, not everywhere, but in some cities they gave the Christians the option. Convert to Muslim or if you want to stay Christian, we will physically chain an actual life-size wooden cross to your wrist or your leg. You can marry, you can have children, you can, go, you can do anything you want, but wherever you go, that actual life-size cross is going to be with you. Now, that changes your economic situation, doesn't it? Imagine applying for a job picking strawberries with an eight-foot cross chained to your ankle. Well, how many baskets can you pick in a day? A previous applicant said 20. You say, well, with this cross, maybe one? But as I pick the strawberries, this cross is going to kill all of the plants as I drag it across the field. Yeah, it changes your economic situation. What did they do? How did they live? They picked up their crosses. They became very poor. If they had an elderly person who couldn't carry their cross, they would be seen walking through the streets of the city carrying two crosses so that the elderly person or the sick person could get to where they needed to go. Out of their meager incomes that they could somehow eke out, they gave to one another as they had need. And they worshipped God and they sang hymns of praises and they discipled one another. You know what happened? People in the city started going up to the ruling authorities and saying, here's my wrist, strap it on. I want to be like those people. I like them better than you. Very soon, they ended the policy. No more crosses to carry. And the Christians found that it was very difficult to stay single-focused on the kingdom when they didn't have these wooden crosses on their backs. And to this day, in North Africa, almost every Christian has a cross tattooed on their wrist. Because it's someplace where if you pay for food, the merchant's going to see it. And because they're Muslim countries to this day, they may not do trade with you. When you go for a job interview, they're going to see it. They found they didn't like the crosses being taken off. Because it made them less devoted to Christ and more susceptible to trying to serve two masters. I only know this because when I lived in Vancouver, I met a young woman who had a cross tattooed on her on her wrist, and she was curious why nobody in Canada, no Christians in Canada did that. She thought all Christians did that. 
It was just normal. It's a permanent commitment to Jesus. You can't change it. Put it in there. Make it obvious. Okay, that's how they answered the question in 7th century North Africa. Let's go to a completely different economic situation. How does the CEO of a large multinational corporation who comes to know Jesus, what does he do? There was a man who, who did that. He became a Christian. He had yachts. He had houses. He had vacation homes in tropical places. He had buildings in various cities around the world. And he found to his dismay that it was very difficult to go to church because whichever church he would enter, everyone only saw dollar signs. So how do I do this? Do I just give it all away? Quit my job? He sought the Lord. He sought Christian counsel. I know Billy Graham's one of the people he sought counsel with. And he started going from city to city because he was always traveling as a CEO. He'd do his business, get it done as quick as he could, and then he would, he would find ways to seek out the other business people in that city, in that company, in that place that also were Christians. And he'd gather them together and they'd study the Bible and, and, uh, and he would disciple them. They would disciple one another. And he started this uh, Christian business association that's had a huge impact across the world. One of the people in that Bible study group, that international high-flying Bible study group, uh, was building an office tower, and, uh, and, and he, it had many floors, and he was going to make huge profits. It was in the booms in the 80s, and, and he, uh, he decided, well, in the, in the prayer group, he said, well, what, what do I do? And uh, so that he knew of a church in the, in the city there, in the downtown, that was going from rented space to rented space, and the, the prospect of buying multi-million dollar properties to build a church was just beyond reach. So he got the board of that church and he invited them into, the, into this building under construction. And, and I guess he has a sense of humor or a sense of biblicality or something like that. He took them to the 10th floor. And, he, and it was just empty. It was just like the pillars of the building and the glass on the outside and just, just concrete. And he said, here's a lease agreement. 100-year lease. I forget what it was. Something like $100 a month. Whatever you want in here, we'll build it whatever size seating sanctuary, your office arrangements, we'll build it all right here. And because the parking lot under the office tower is completely empty from Friday about 4 o'clock until Monday morning, you'll have free parking for as many people as you can bring in here. And they had a downtown church. Another one started going around the world to his all of his contacts, all of his high-flying contacts, and he would sit down in the offices of people around the world and he would show them his bank, his, his statements, his bank statements. He said, I'm making sure that by the time I die, 80% of what I own will be given to the work of God. What are you doing? And he would challenge them and he would sit in their office. He was, he was powerful enough in that world that he could get into any office he wanted to. And he, and he, he put out the challenge. 50%? 20%? And I only know this story because I went to a seminary 
who built this building based on the foundation of one of these types of donors. That's how they answered the question. How should they live in the economic situation they find themselves? In 1948, there were thousands of Christian missions across China. Hospitals, schools, outreach centers, and little churches. There is estimated to be about 700,000 Christians, Chinese Christians, which seems like maybe a lot to our ears, but when you look at the vastness of China and the huge population, it's like a needle in a haystack. You'd never find even one of them unless someone told you exactly where to go and how to find them. In, 19, in 1949, the next year, the Chinese Communist Party took over and expelled every single foreigner most particularly all of the missionaries, all of the Christian doctors, all of the school teachers, every single one. It was illegal to have a religion of any kind in China. Most people predicted that because the church in China was so young and so immature, it would disappear completely without the support of the missionaries, without the discipleship of the missionaries. If anyone would stand up at a pulpit and speak, they would be sent to the prison camps. Took away all the Bibles. Everything was gone. It became illegal to hire a Christian. The economic situation changed drastically from one year to the next. What did they do? How did they live? Well, they became poor. Their leadership was gone, both the international leadership and the national leadership. They started writing down on paper whatever verses from the Bible they'd memorized and kind of pieced together most of the New Testament, at least in, it, in some form or another. They never put it all together into a book because if you were caught on the street and, and searched, if you had a little piece of paper with some words on it, of course the, the, the police didn't know the Bible, they just thought you were trying to be a creative writer or something. So they, they kept them and they, and they traded these papers with one another. They met in stairwells, behind buildings, in basements, in barn lofts. And they worshipped God. And they gave what they had maybe just the memory of a single memory verse to one another. They did something quite creative. They soon discovered that no man, much less a Christian man, could get a, a visa to be a student in North America. But the Chinese Communist Party had nothing on their radar concerning 18-year-old women. So they started sending their young women to North America on student visas. And these young men, women would do their, whatever it was, a biology degree or a, or a technology degree or a doctor's degree or, a, or an engineering degree, study hard, get that done, but then they would have a completely separate life where they would go to seminary and they would get a theology degree and they would memorize the whole Bible so it couldn't be taken from them. And they would, they would um, 
they would develop a network of prayer supporters over here in Canada. Then they'd go back to China, and they could go from town to town, from from underground house church to house church, unnoticed by the authorities, because they were looking for men. Sometimes it's good to have a chauvinistic government. That's why today, almost every Chinese church in Canada has a female in the pulpit. That's how it happened. They were called Bible ladies. It's the only way they could get the Bible into their churches. So what did they do when their economic situation changed? They worshipped God. They became generous to one another. They built little outposts of heaven in basements and stairwells across China. And when the Chinese government finally let North Americans back in, the church in China had grown from 700,000 to over 3 million. And today it's over 100 million. It's very soon expected to be more than 50% of Chinese people. They didn't fight the government. They served the Lord. I don't have my, my time here because I don't have my slides. It's not working today. So I can go on forever, right? <laughs> I don't know what time it is. I've got another story. This one's a little closer to home. Then we'll stop. As part of my, my studies, I took a, a course that was hosted on on Thetis Island, uh, on the ocean there, uh, near Vancouver Island. And I met a man who told a story. It's an interesting story. His name was Willis Shank. He'd been a fisherman. Uh, he'd, done, he'd been doing quite well. This was back in the 60s. And he... Uh, He had a fishing boat that he owned free and clear. He'd paid it off. And he was buying a couple of more boats and paying the mortgages and hiring people to run them. And him and his wife had this this plan for their lives and it was good and it was was hard work, but they they had it figured out. Um, Some treaty battles happened. Fishing rights and locations and times changed dramatically. Lost almost everything he had. Him and his wife were living on their boat because it's all they had left. You would think that he would spend his time and energy, energy like most of the other fishermen, lobbying the government, trying to change, topple the government that made this happen and all of that. But instead, he and his wife went to the local churches around the Spokane area, filled the boat up with books, built a little coffee shack on the boat and went up the coast to all the native villages they weren't welcome in the villages because they're white fishermen but they said well that's okay but we got free stuff on the boat we have children's books we have you know come on choose what you want take it home have a coffee while you're here on the boat they went up to Alaska Panhandle back down filled the boat up again went up back down They started little churches in every community. In those days, there was no roads into any of these places. You could only get there by boat. 
And I, I know he tells this story that in at least 10 different towns, within about five years, five, 10 years, I don't remember exactly what he said, the liquor stores in those towns went bankrupt because there was no one buying liquor anymore. The RCMP had to take their detachments out of the towns because there was nothing for them to do. There wasn't any crime anymore because the people were gathering around their Bibles and worshiping God and the economy of their village had changed because they were generous to one another And they were finding fulfillment in life by looking beyond this life. Focusing their eyes, as Wayne did this morning, ours, on heaven. That that boat grew into into a purchased uh, World War II minesweeper that was converted into a mission and hospital and continued up and down the coast. And today is North American Indigenous Mission that has mission from the from the Baja Peninsula up to as far as you can go in Alaska. Instead of being mad at the people that took away his livelihood, changed his economic situation, he brought Jesus to them. If I lived in Wainwright in 2021 with all the uncertainty of the current economic situation what should I do? How should I live? Thank you, Pastor. This is very good. Um, God's word is so good. So we'll close our service with uh, a scripture reading, and I think, uh, not just think, but it, it's two of the most important verses in the Bible. And I'm reading from Mark 12, verses 28 to 31. And it reads, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And if we actually do this, we'll be good. So with that, you're dismissed and have a Good week.